to another MX podcast. Today we're coming to you from Brussels. My name's James Paniki. I'm the managing editor of MLEX's Brussels Bureau. And Brexit has been looming large this week, not just because the latest round of negotiations kicked off in Brussels on Monday, but also because of the echoes, or according to your point of view, the shockwaves of a speech delivered in Florence last week by UK Prime Minister Theresa May. And May wasn't in the cradle of the Renaissance to buy tourist knickknacks on the Ponte Vecchio. She wasn't there to check out Botticelli's Birth of Venus at the Uffizi. No, May chose Florence as the backdrop for a key speech on her vision for Brexit. But how did the speech go in the EU's corridors of power? Also, since we last spoke, the leader of the free world, Angela Merkel, was returned to power, albeit with a slightly tarnished electoral mandate. How will that impact the Brexit process. Yes, I'm using impact as a transitive verb. My mother would be horrified. Who better to put those questions to than the members of our Brexit reporting team? Simon Taylor, who's based in Brussels, and Matthew Holhouse in London under normal circumstances, but with us for this week's talks. Now, let's start with May's speech and then talk about this week's negotiations. Matthew, the Florence speech was important because it fleshed out May's vision for a trade agreement after Brexit. What does May's vision look like? So May has fleshed out a little bit the vision of what she thinks a future relationship should look like. And it's basically a hybrid that sits between what she describes as two extremes of Norway and Canada. What she means by Canada is is a regular sort of international trade agreement. What she means by uh, Norway is full membership of the single market Uh, with the automatic application of the full gamut of single market legislation. What the UK seems to be tilting towards is a trade agreement which would effectively fossilise chunks, sector by sector, of EU law uh, to, to build a model that sits somewhere in between. Now, what does that look like? Well, one sector, for example, could be aviation. Uh, if you look at the, the Swiss agreement on aviation, they have better market access than most third countries. It's not as good access as you would get if you're a full member of the single market like the UK has currently. And in exchange for that access, they agree to implement a really wide range of the uh, acquis in aviation. So they apply uh, competition law, they apply ownership law, they apply the rules around you know how your ticket machine has to work or... Uh, what compensation you get if your flight's delayed. So that one sector is an area where the UK government's saying, look, we're fully aligned with the EU rules on this. We've no great desire to change them. Can we capitalise on that alignment in this sector alone to get better access than we would if we were a complete third country? And that that's a real test for the EU about how they respond to that. And at a purely political level, therefore, the message that she's sending is that she doesn't want an off-the-shelf agreement. She wants something, you know, she's used the expression creative hybrid. She wants something, as you put it, somewhere between Norway and Canada, but she doesn't want Norway and she doesn't want Canada. Exactly. She said that Norway comes with too many strings attached. It implies a sort of automatic application of, of EU law, which would be unsuitable for you know the sixth largest mm. economy in the world that is sort of uh, pretty resistant, it seems, after the Brexit vote to that sort of automaticity. She thinks that a Canada deal is is too thin and you are throwing away... 40 years of regulatory alignment, which the British government in many cases designed and pushed. Mm. So how do you how do you balance the two? Taking advantage of that alignment, as elements of the single market that you actually think are quite good and quite effective, 
with with not wanting to have no control of the future. So it would effectively be a standstill in certain sectors. Now, this is a problem for the EU because its position initially was you can't cherry-pick the single market. You can't go, well, we like the acquis in aviation, we like the acquis in state aid, but we don't like what you're doing in, I don't know, cars, we don't like what you're doing in labour law. They didn't want the UK to go along the buffet picking out the bits it wants initially. Now we're seeing a slightly different message. They're not actually saying quite so much you can't go sector by sector picking, but what they are saying is that if you're going to have this sort of access, it's going to come with some pretty major conditions, right, in terms of the court that you have, in terms of the rules around what they describe as regulatory dumping, what the UK would describe as deregulatory competition, in terms of the rules around uh, state aid policy, around the, what sort of labour market conditions you can have. And what was really interesting about May's speech is while it was quite thin on the details of the sector, where she played it really long was talking around the idea that the UK doesn't want to engage in deregulatory competition, she said. She said the UK actually quite likes its current environmental standards. The British public quite like mm labor laws and and that that she wasn't saying that for the good of her health that's a big message to the eu i think she is ready to do a deal to maintain the current eu level of mm. labor standards which, which opens the door to a deal and simon this brings us back to the conversation that we had last time which was about the impossibility of a singapore model so that the uk could no longer uh, put forward an idea of this kind of deregul- deregulatory competition where it would be competing against the EU. Um, she's obviously driving home this message. This would have come to a, a, as a shock, not so much to people in the EU, I suppose, but uh, to the more uh, passionate Brexiteers back home who had always seen the advantage of Brexit as being uh, the ability to compete when it comes to deregulation, to have this kind of a, a Singapore model. How do you read the, uh, the political atmospherics of this? Well, there is a hardcore of the pro-Brexit camp that uh, was in favour of Brexit because of the opportunity to, uh, for a, you know, a deregulated, low-tax uh, economy, maybe much more like the US model uh, or like the Singapore model. Um, but what what we've learned in the last year since uh, since the referendum is that that would come at a very high price, and the price would be. Um, full access, uninhibited access to the single market. Now, that will be um, restricted in some way. Uh, It has to be restricted. It has to be restricted. But um, what May's speech says is that, by and large, we want to, as Matthew says, preserve most of the rules. So you'll hear this word convergence and divergence. The UK will continue to be in, you know, convergence with EU EU law. So all the people who said we're going to have this great bonfire of red tape and, and we're going to be... Uh, you know, a buccaneering uh, free trade uh, country, uh, that's really not going to happen. And there certainly isn't going to be a big sort of um, economic boost from scrapping red tape, because if we were to do that, if the UK were to do that, we'd lose access to the single market, and that would come at a huge uh, economic cost um, to businesses and to exporters, which would uh, massively outweigh uh, the benefits of getting rid of bits of legislation. So this is the real fight in the cabinet at the moment, is that May May left a lot of the details a little bit TBC. I mean, the situation I've just described is what we can sort of infer from the speech. 
Uh, but Boris Johnson, shortly before she made the speech, uh, uh, posted a piece in the Daily Telegraph of 4,000 words spelling out the importance of the ability to diverge, effectively arguing what's the point of leaving the EU if you're not going to diverge from it. So this debate around how closely the UK wants to cleave to the EU in the future is very alive at the moment, particularly given that once the UK has left the EU, the direction it may take in many of its decisions will inevitably change. So it's, um, it, 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 it's, it's by no means settled in the UK. And what we learned this week is that there were uh, three position papers which we were due to see published by the UK two weeks ago. These covered aviation and energy, a networks paper, one on open and fair trading, which I, I think is competition and state aid, and one on services. Now, they have been held up. I understand we won't see them before Conservative Party Conference, which is next week. And uh, it would seem that that is in part because these papers go to the heart of, of this debate about how far the UK can commit at this stage to matching EU rules in, in the coming years. But, but would those delays be internal party politics in the UK? Would there be uh, political reservations or would it really be about a strategic advantage vis-a-vis the EU negotiating team? Well, it's not clear. It's not clear. But one of the interesting things about these papers is that, uh, I mean, they're partly about setting out to the EU what the UK wants, but it's they're also about forging consensus within the UK government. So civil servants talking to ministers saying, you know, we've drafted this, can you accept this? Them going to Downing Street, and then they have to be, they have to go through the cabinet through a process called right round. So once they've been published, that's a common cabinet position. So, you know, if papers aren't getting published, you do have to ask, well, at, at what stage in the process is, is this being delayed? And, and the cabinet right-round process is, is very important. And there was, a, there was a bit of a row over the summer because it was, it was claimed that these papers were being pushed out at, at high speed while you know, cabinet ministers were on the beach and didn't have time to scrutinise them properly. Simon, the other political reality here is that nobody's going to be talking trade until progress has made on the issues that matter the most to the EU. So the, the, the main question now is whether or not in this speech May has made enough progress to allay those concerns and whether or not the EU negotiators may now be prepared to at least start to talk uh, trade-related issues. Yeah, I mean, the, the key thing that people were looking for f- uh, from the May speech was a signal on um, her willingness to settle the Brexit bill, i.e. The, the money that the UK owes uh, as a member of the EU, but a member that's leaving in March 2019. And uh, May came up with a very carefully chosen uh, wording, which was, we will honour the commitments we made as a member. Uh, she didn't mention a figure, but uh, this is quite clear to to, uh, to everyone on the EU side, um, or at least they've taken it to mean, um, that the UK will pay its full bill for 2019 and 2020, um, which is the sort of the ongoing budgeting period for the EU and the budget that David Cameron signed up to when he was Prime Minister in 2013. Um, so that part of the speech, even though there was no uh, dollar or euro or uh, pound sterling figure put on it, uh, that part of the speech would have been well received in the corridors it's, of power. It's well received, I mean, I think, but, um, but I mean, from the EU side, that's the bare minimum that she had to, uh, uh, had to sort of offer. Um, because the EU, the view of the EU 27 is that, uh, of course, the UK owes the money for 2019 and 2020. The issue is there's a lot of other money besides. There's pension and salary liabilities for 
British officials, or in fact for all uh, officials working in the EU institutions, that there are contributions the UK makes to development funds, to the refugee fund uh, for Syrian refugees who, who end up in Turkey, and so on and so forth. So this was, if you like, uh, the bare minimum she could get away with. And I think what it's done is it's kept the negotiations on track. The negotiations were had really ground to a halt, and there was a danger that they were going to... Uh, almost collapse, and she's kept the process uh, going on. Um, talking to people in Brussels, um, they know that its Conservative Party conference uh, starting on Sunday. May is giving a big speech next Wednesday, and they're they're watching that to make sure not not to see if she makes any further sort of uh, uh, indicates any further movement in the Brexit for the Brexit negotiations, but at least that she doesn't backtrack on what she said in Florence the other week. And then maybe after that, she can come back to the negotiating table with a bit more clarity about the money. And that's what people are hoping for. But they understand that domestic party politics are the first priority until we get to the end of next week. So if anyone in the UK were under the misapprehension that they could now happily proceed with uh, trade talks as a result of this uh, position on the part of the Prime Minister, they would be deluding themselves, wouldn't they? I mean, there is no, no carte blanche as far as the, uh, the EU side is concerned. Well, all the EU leaders are coming together uh, um, in Brussels at the end of October, and the UK was hoping very much that there would be a decision to move the talks, uh, the Brexit talks, onto a future trade deal um, at that summit. Now, we don't think that's going to happen. I don't think anyone thinks that's going to happen. I think the, the decision will come later this year, possibly in December, maybe even November. So really, the time available to negotiate this thing, which will be extremely tricky, uh, is getting shorter and shorter. Matthew, this is a good opportunity to talk about courts, because one of the things that uh, was mentioned in the speech was a recognition that there would be eventually the oversight of, uh, for any trade deal, the oversight of a court. It wouldn't be an EU court, but it would be a court nonetheless. Does that tell us anything that we didn't know already about the UK's position and the UK's thinking on this? Not really, no. <laughs> we, um, was there, so last time we talked about the UK court's paper, which has effectively um, had raided uh, the EFTA the, the, the court, which uh, governs the EEA agreement. There were two further concessions in May's speech, which again marks a further softening of the UK's position. In terms of the governance of citizens' rights, uh, firstly, she said that the UK courts would take into account future ECJ case law governing uh, the agreement. So if you've got you know, EU legislation on the coordination of pensions, new uh, ECJ decision on that, the UK courts will follow it. Uh, so again, the red line of no ECJ rule in the UK is getting thinner and thinner. The second move, which uh, amazingly she's got away with, it seems, inside her own party, is this principle of direct effect. Now, direct effect is the EU law principle that says uh, an EU treaty creates rights uh, that bite on the individual. They, they penetrate the uh, domestic legal order and an individual can stand up in their local magistrate's court and say, you can't do that because of because the EU treaty says you can't, and, and that is, that is uh, supreme over, over any domestic statute. Now, the UK lawyers had gone to great length explaining why this principle had to die after Brexit, because it's an alien concept. It exists only in EU law. It's not natural to the UK's uh, dualist uh, constitution that says that international treaties are delivered in the UK through domestic law. 
not not through the principle of direct effect. Uh, there was a, a long technical note explaining all this. And May's U-turned. She's, uh, she's agreed that the withdrawal agreement, which will be an international treaty, can be binding on domestic courts. You, can, you will be able to stand up in 2030 in front of your local court mm. and say, you can't do that. This move by the Home Office is illegal because it's not in the withdrawal agreement. This is direct effect. The mm. EU calls it direct effect. May didn't use the words, but, but that's what it is. It's a recreation of this EU law principle. Now, you might say, who cares? Because, you know, this is this is high legal theology. Um, but if you are a conservative backbencher who has delivered a constitutional revolution because you think that these concepts are alien to the UK way of life, it's, it's a concession. But it might be enough to get a deal. This brings us uh, nicely into questions about what impact the German vote, the German elections might have had this week. Obviously, uh, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel has been somewhat weakened by the result. There's been a hemorrhaging of votes towards the extreme right. What does that mean for Brexit? Does it mean anything, in fact? Well, um, yes, uh, um, the uh, share of the vote of Angela Merkel's um, uh, CDU and the sister party in Bavaria, CSU, is down. Um, but uh, she still um, has the uh, uh, majority party, or the largest party, rather, in the, in the Bundestag. She's going to have to form a coalition with two other parties, the Greens and the, uh, the Liberals, the Free Democrats. Now, the thing is, in terms of the German position on Brexit, it's not going to change very much because all the mainstream parties are strongly pro-European and really share Merkel's uh, view that uh, protecting the integrity of and the unity of the EU and the integrity of the single market is paramount in the negotiations. So in substance, nothing is going to change. Because um, she has now to deal with two parties uh, who have very different views, the Greens, obviously, um, uh, very much in favour of promoting uh, renewable energy, government intervention to help renewable energy, to take one example, uh, and to move towards electric vehicles, for example. Uh, On the other hand, you have the Free Democrats, who are very much the pro-business party, really want to get tax cuts in this this administration. That'll that'll be a very difficult um, coalition deal to put together, and it'll take longer to do it. Normally, the last time around, it took about two months. We expect uh, that the coalition will probably not be settled uh, until um, it could be as late as early next year. So it will really be an issue of timing rather than of content. None of these coalition partners are necessarily going to want to change radically, have a radical change of, uh, of Germany's position. It just means that the leader of the free world will be on uh, on leave in, in a way until, until this coalition uh, is sorted out. There aren't really any big questions for the German government uh, to settle at the moment, but the one of uh, what we talked about, the decision to move on to trade talks, uh, is coming by the end of the year. Um, I think the German, there will be a German government or Merkel will feel able to take that decision. But it means that when the trade talks do start, it won't be until early next year. And then the clock is really ticking because the, EU's, uh, the UK is leaving the EU in March 2019. Barnier wants, or the, the deal that emerges has to be approved by the European Parliament and the UK Parliament. That will take several months. 
Um, so really, we're looking at something like a year, just over a year, to do this very, to complete this very, very complex set of negotiations. And the German elections have eaten into the UK's time for those negotiations. Simon and Matthew, thank you very much for chatting, and thanks for all of your work over the past two weeks. Thank, thank you. you. Matthew Holhouse is our London-based Brexit reporter. Simon Taylor is our Brussels-based senior political correspondent. Both of them report on Brexit regulatory risk for MLEX. And over the past week, they've written extensively on all of the issues we've covered today. Theresa May's Florence speech, the UK's outstanding financial obligations and the impact of the German elections on the Brexit process. From me, James Paniki, and all the team here in the Brussels Bureau, thank you very much for your company. Don't forget to check out the wide range of podcasts available from our offices around the globe. Bye for now.